You can get efficiency through rote memorization, but what you don't get, what you don't get is efficiency plus appropriate use, and more importantly, adaptive use. Welcome to Math Teacher Lounge. I'm your host, Dan Meyer. And I'm Bethany Lockhart-Johnson. And on today's episode, we are going to continue going deeper into the t- same topic we've been on this whole season, the topic of math fluency. Um, so far, we tried to establish what it is um, with, with one guest and then think about how to measure it and develop it with other guests. And we're so excited about our next guest here today. Bethany, how has this topic been, uh, been working on you? Has it been feeding you uh, and your ideas about education at all? I mean, Dan, we've already established that I've I've been the fluency fan from go. Minute one. So the better question is how is it working on you? I I definitely I love our deep dives. I love the fact that we get to take this topic and talk about it over multiple episodes and hear from the audience and incorporate their questions. So I mean, I'm thrilled to be here. So what about you? You're you're here. You're ready. Yeah, yeah. I just for those who are just popping in for this episode, Bethany and I have a, a dynamic that pulls in different directions sometimes, and that's always been really helpful for us and our banter, our repartee. And this season, the, the tension is, is that Bethany is huge fan of fluency and fluency development. And I have had experiences as a secondary teacher where I am, kids are coming to me, you know, after eight, nine years of having, in some cases, some pretty negative experiences with fluency development, where they're coming and they've had these, uh, these different moments where they think like, oh, so math is about... Uh, doing the same boring thing over and over again and and getting some feedback that I'm smart or dumb, you know, and I'm, and I'm generally feel dumb with that. And so that, that's led me to like kind of drift away from enthusiasm towards fluency, like drift away from fluency. But what's been working on me a little bit is a, a really strong strand through our conversation so far, Bethany, around equity and how when you, if I deprive a student of experiences of generating fluency, even if that's in favor of experiences where they see the beauty of math, let's say, or the creativity in math, I'm making it harder for them to experience through that fluency, harder to experience new ideas as accessible and approachable. So that's been, I think, the the idea that's been working on me so far uh, this season. I would love to interject here, if you wouldn't mind. (laughs) Folks, folks, guest Dr. Art Baruti can't wait for his intro. He wants in on this. Let's go, Dr. Baruti. Let's go. Let's talk about it. I really, I really appreciate your comment about how fluency ruins kids. Because if it's fostered in the wrong way, it's exactly what's going to happen. Kids are going to think that math is all about just memorizing stuff and regurgitating it quickly. And it does so much damage to approach fluency in the wrong way through rote memorization. But, and this is the the whole central theme of our talk today, if you teach fluency appropriately, if you foster meaningful memorization, then you get the kinds of things that you want to see too, which is an intellectual curiosity, a, a looking for patterns and relations and, and an excitement about math and a, an ability to appreciate math and, and really want to do something about math. 
I'm feeling this uh, so much. And I really want us to get into this distinction of meaningful memorization, meaningful fluency sure. um, shortly. But let's uh, let's like not let's let's tease them a little bit here, Dr. Broody. You know, sure. Let's not give away the whole the whole farm right away. <laughs> uh, Bethany, do you want to share who we're working with here today? Well, I mean, you've already given us quite an intro, Dr. Broody, but Listeners, this is the fabulous Dr. Art Broody, Professor Emeritus at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He's someone who's been, I mean, you've been studying math fluency for decades. And you are here to, you're going to help help make the case for not only why fluency is so important, but why, like, how do we do it in a way that's meaningful? You know, so Thank you for being here. And I love that you just dove right in. You're like, oh, Dan. Oh, I'm here. I'm ready. <laughs> so thank you again uh, for being here. And we are, we're so excited uh, to have you on the show. I just couldn't resist. I've seen so many teachers frustrated by the way uh, math is taught and, and, and how kids come to them in their class. And they're basically not interested in math or they're even anxious about math. I, I, you know, we, we've got to do a better job. Fried hey, to a crisp. when yep. you're in the lounge, let me tell you, you don't have to hold back. We, <laughs> this won't. is a conversation. <laughs> this is a conversation. We welcome it. That's why you're here. <laughs> we want to hear from you. I, I do want to ask you, so in, in like kind of broadening the way that we think about fluency, one of the things that we're asking all of our guests is what's something that you are developing fluency in right now? Like beyond all the work you, amazing work you've done in mathematics, what's something that like right now you either have recently or are actively trying to develop fluency in? Well, uh, at, at this point in my, my life, I'm trying to be a better husband, father, and grandfather. <laughs> oh. It's, it's always a work in progress. But it's especially important to keep my wife happy. <laughs> you know what? Heard. Wiser Heard. words have never... <laughs> <laughs> Always a learner, right? We can, you can always right. improve. Uh, let me, let me tell you. Let me tell you what my husband did yesterday. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's fantastic. We might jump back in on that too at some point because, like, it, I just, I, I love thinking about like, so is every situation we have with our significant relationships, the folks we want to keep happy, are they all unique like snowflakes, requiring you know a deep conceptual work on the part of the quote unquote learner here, you, to figure out a solution for, or are there are there ways in which your study of fluency can actually be applied in a meaningful way to this kind of real world uh, a question of fluency and relationship please don't answer this is going way deeper than we uh, prepped you for but it's just a curiosity that i have right now like are there moments where this uh, our work in one area can actually jump into the other i'm gonna yeah. let that hang for a second dr broody and, and instead ask you about your work in grad school what fascinates me about you is that like sure. when i went through grad school i was motivated to prove a thing like I, I had this like i got these ideas they're never gonna change they're correct i'm gonna find the research <laughs> and do the studies to back them up and i feel like you have a, a, a bio that i love which is like you came into grad school with ideas about fluency it sounds like and then those started to change a bit through your encounter with 
reality with like your em empirical work. And I, I would love for you to describe a bit about your transition or what you learned through your graduate work on fluency. Like what do you find as far as the conventional wisdom and, and how it was correct or incorrect? Sure. As an undergrad, I was trained as a teacher and I became interested in psychology, especially the psychology of learning. So when I, when I went off to grad school, a natural major was educational psychology. And I had the good fortune of uh, studying with Herb Ginsberg, who was a great mentor. He was a leading researcher in mathematical learning. And in particular, he was interested in this new area of children's informal mathematical development and how it provided a basis for formal mathematical learning, including providing an informal basis for fluency. And so that's where I got my uh, initial interest uh, in fluency. Uh, Herb Ginsberg was an interesting mentor. What he would do with his grad students is say, okay, here's one side of the issue, here's the other side of the issue, here's the research, you decide which is right. Now, <laughs> that's highly unusual. <laughs> but it, it helped me a great deal because what I started to do was dive into the, the research on mathematical learning. And one of the issues that we were encouraged to explore was how do kids learn the basic number combinations? Well, when I started grad school, I believe what everyone believes, that if kids don't know the basic facts, then what you have to do is make sure they have massive amounts of drill and practice to memorize those facts. And that was certainly true of my undergraduate training. In fact, uh, I was at a parent-teacher uh, meeting, and one of the uh, fathers stood up and said, you know, everyone knows what two plus two is. And you know how we know that? And here it is, someone who's had no training whatsoever, but of course they know everything about how to teach mathematics. Okay, he said, well, remember back in first and second grade, what did we do? Your teachers gave you all sorts of practice and drill on two plus two equals four. And that's why you know two plus two equals four. It turns out that a lot of kids know two plus two equals four before they even get to school. So it's, it's not an adequate explanation. We'll talk more about that later. And so one of the things that comes out of a traditional or a conventional view of fluency is that informal methods such as counting, especially finger counting, Oh, that's bad. Now, counting and finger counting, those are just crutches for avoiding the real work of memorizing those facts. Well, that's certainly uh, uh, what I believed at the time. And I'm, basically, I was looking at the issue through adult eyes. What Ginsburg taught me was that you, in order to understand learning, to understand the issues around learning, you also have to look at the issues through a child's eyes. And one of the first things I learned was that kids have their own informal methods 
of solving math problems. So if you ask a child, how much is five plus three? Kids typically, at least initially, what they'll do is they'll count out five fingers or they'll put up five fingers, count out three more fingers or put up three fingers, and then count all the fingers and come up with the answer. And, and why is this important? Because kids aren't stupid. And so what they do is they continuously invent increasingly efficient counting procedures to figure out sums and differences. And what this enables kids to do then is to look for patterns and relationships among the number facts. And this can then be used to devise reasoning strategies. For example, I was uh, observing a kindergarten class while I was in grad school one time, and we were playing a simple race game where the children would throw two dice and figure out what the sum was, and that's how many spaces they could move on a racetrack. And one little girl rolled a six and a one, and she didn't have six fingers on one hand, so she wasn't quite sure what to do. Uh, and she was really kind of puzzled by the question. And the little girl next to her leaned over and whispered in her ear, that's an easy one, Marcy. It's just the number after. Now, what this kindergartner had discovered was a connection between her counting knowledge, specifically her number after knowledge, and adding one. When you add one, the sum is just the number after the other number in the count sequence. So for six plus one, the answer is what number comes after six when we count? Seven. It's easy. I have to say what I'm hearing is you seeing the brilliance of children. Yes. And you're you're seeing the the wisdom and what they bring in and their innate brilliance, right? Mm -hmm. And so much of the conversation I feel like when we're talking to educators is really wanting to celebrate the way children think. And I often feel that that's separated from the task of fluency, right? But what you're saying here is exactly what I think excites me about it, is that there are patterns, there are ways to look at it, there's sense-making happening, even in something that might seem simple to an adult, two plus three, right. kiddos are bringing so much to that. And when we listen, we can respond in ways that respect and value what they're bringing to the table. Yeah. And I love hearing, it sounds like the way that you thought about fluency and listening and working with kids really evolved. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I was once uh, told by an, uh, another adult that uh, being a psychologist must really ruin kids for me, must take all the fun out of it. No, <laughs> you see more. You appreciate yes. more of what they can do. And so it, it's amazing. And 
<laughs> it's exhilarating. It's quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah, what I love to say about the the plus one example here is that like that moment happened in a span of like five right. seconds, right? That that like exchange between right. students. And what folks like you and us and our, our listeners who have taught for a while and thought deeply about teaching, like you can you can see that moment up in the sports booth playing out in real time and say, whoa, slow that down, back it up, let's do a replay. And you could do a whole dissertation, maybe you did, about that one moment. And I just think it's so interesting how, how that came from a peer is like a moment that might get missed by a layperson. This person who spoke to you in a you know a, in, a, in a meeting about what how, how kids develop fluency right. without expertise. Um, and I also think it's so interesting how a lot of people might suggest that what the student needed was to be told this idea about one yeah. after before. But it's amazing to me how how much time students need. Like I see my own six-year-old like counting up, mm -hmm. you know, to five. And I'm just like, buddy, I just want to tell him, you know, like, and sometimes I even do, but it, it doesn't matter. Like it's so, so much of these ideas, the informal learning is so durable and needs it to not run its own course, but have enough experiences tossed at it, it feels like, such that those moments you described then become natural. And I wonder if you'd explain a little bit about what you're learning about fluency development gone wrong. Like, what are some common ways? Like, I, I feel like I mentioned, like, rushing it, you know? Can I, can I expand on your other comment for just a moment? Spin it. Yeah, spin it, what, please. What I think is interesting about informal mathematical learning is that kids can learn a great deal from their peers. And often their peers are closer to the situation and understand the situation better than adults. We as adults have forgotten how we learn the basic combinations. And so we, we, most adults aren't even aware that there's a number after rule that can be used to quickly, efficiently generate the sum of any any number plus one for which you know the count sequence. People, most people just are not aware of that. But this little girl probably had just made the discovery or done so in the recent past. And so for her, it was still a fresh issue. It was still something in her mind. And so she was able to share that with her, her peer. And with any luck, her peer benefited from, from that. I think it speaks to all these different learning paths that we have all been on in developing our own fluency and how easy it is to forget the path in favor of the destination and then try to create this like paved route for kids that bypasses what for so many of us was necessary. Right. Kind of stumbling a, around right. a bit. Not, I don't want to revel in the stumbling, but to, to see that that those informal, I guess the informal formal dichotomy there is so so important to me i think where if we're not just like discovering or just like wandering in the dark but we are taking stock of our surroundings and thinking about what, we, what resources we have and sometimes i think it seems like teachers want to move to the side of that and say well actually there's this there's a highway over here it's moving so fast and can get you there faster which i think leaves students yeah. disoriented to these connections to inform from informal to formal knowledge is that like is that how close is that to what you studied with Ginsburg about how formal and, and informal knowledge is, is related. Basically, one of the key points that Ginsburg made was that, that most mathematical learning problems in school are due to a fact that there's a gap between the formal instruction 
and the child's informal knowledge. So if a kid is struggling with math, and I found I have found this with my own case studies, uh, the problem typically is not the child. The problem typically is that the formal instruction is not connecting with what the child knows already. And yep. if, if your teachers get nothing else out of this uh, talk today, it, the principle of assimilation, Piaget's principle of assimilation is that we understand things in terms of what we already understand. So we understand new stuff in terms of the stuff that we already understand. And that principle is violated way too often. And when it is, kids don't have any recourse other than rote memorization or quitting, not learning it. And and those aren't good options. Yeah, I love it. It's like, uh, it's like uh, since all new knowledge builds on old knowledge, it leads to this beautiful like rule for learning, I feel like, which is that everybody knows something about everything. Like pick any topic that I might one day learn about that's, that's way beyond me, aeronautical engineering, let's say. That knowledge has got to build on stuff right. that I at one point knew, it, like down to knowledge that I was forming as a small child crawling around, like can be useful, puts me on a path towards this knowledge. And I love the spirit that, that Bethany brings and through our work and what we've talked about here, where like a, that kids are, are brilliant. They have resources that can help all of us learn, feels like to me an important takeaway of our conversation here. Bethany, what's, what's your thoughts about that? Well, absolutely. I feel like as a teacher, we're facilitators for to help build those connections or to help highlight those connections and celebrate those connections between the new material and the things that kiddos already know, right? And I feel like when we're thinking about fluency, when we see time tests or speed drills and we, we see as you said, the damage that's caused by that, not helping kiddos to build connections. I I mean, I feel like, I don't know, in listening to this conversation, it's I, I feel really moved because I get so excited thinking about different moments when I've seen kiddos build those connections, right? And how can we as educators help each other to make sure that even in something that has so been drilled down to these speed tests and rote memorization, how can we make it, make those connections present there too? How can we treat that with that same level of respect and the kids with the same level of respect, right? And I feel like you're, you, you know, you've spoken about something called meaningful memorization. Right. And I feel like maybe you can talk a bit more about that because that feels a lot more like, there's a lot more awareness of like, kids and and making it matter and respecting them than like rote drill and kill right, right? Uh, meaningful memorization basically involves a number of things meaningful memorization builds on a child's conceptual understanding of an operation for example so a child needs to understand what addition is what subtraction is what multiplication is in, in order to achieve fluency with those facts. Let me give you a, an example. If a child understands that multiplication 
one meaning of multiplication is a groups of meaning. So five times eight means I've got five groups of eight items each. Okay, if a child understands that conceptually, then five times zero makes sense. Because what do you have? I've got five groups of no items. So how many items do I have all together? <laughs> I have no items. So contrary to most multiplication facts, the answer here is not getting bigger. <laughs> and kids can understand it if they have this conceptual understanding of multiplication as a groups of meaning. So it can help kids then memorize the zero rule for multiplication in a, in a meaningful way. The other aspect of uh, meaningful memorization is discovering patterns and relations. Like our little girl here who discovered the connection between adding one and, and her number after knowledge, her existing number after knowledge. So meaningful memorization involves building on both conceptual understanding and trying to find new patterns and relations to, to enrich that conceptual understanding. Do you feel that there, I, I, for me, I, when I hear that, it sounds so spot on, right? And it makes a lot of sense to me. But what would be your response to folks that feel like we still, yes, let's make it meaningful, let's build these concepts, but we still need the time test. We still need the speed drills. Is there a space for that? Um, speed, speed test, uh, time test are, are a tool, an educational tool. And like any tool, they need to be used carefully and thoughtfully and where appropriate. The problem with time tests, as they're often used, is that they're they're, they're used, overused. Time tests make sense after a child understands an operation, after they've had a chance to explore the operation using counting, so that they've had a chance to find patterns and relations among the facts and devise reasoning strategies like the number after rule. Once a child has devised a reasoning strategy, then it would make sense to have them practice it even under a time condition to make sure that it becomes more efficient, that it becomes fluent. But there's no sense trying to impose fluency before a child has constructed the reasoning strategy. That makes no sense whatsoever. It makes no sense whatsoever to have time tests before a child has constructed an understanding of the operation. So mathematics educators for a long time now have argued that you need to be careful about premature practice, that you, you shouldn't have kids doing drills before they have devised means for figuring out the sum or difference or product or quotient or whatever. So I'm not completely opposed to time tests, but boy, you have to use them really, really carefully. 
when we were developing software for helping kids learn the basic addition and subtraction combinations, initially there was no timing involved. But once the child had developed a strategy, then we wanted to start introducing the, ch the child to some time limit, a generous time limit, so that there was some incentive to use the strategy as quickly as possible. Now, the thing is, practice doesn't have to be boring. It doesn't have to be flashcards. It doesn't have to be boring drill. It, it can involve games. Dice games are especially important to preschool kids and kids in the early primary grades. Why? Because they can see again and again that two plus one is three, that two and two is four. So they can begin to learn some of the add one combinations or facts, and they can begin to learn some of the doubles, such as two plus two is four, three plus three is six. And this then provides a basis then for learning other facts, such as two plus three. Because if you know the number after rule for adding one, and you know the double two plus two is four, you can look at two plus three and say, ah, that's just two and two and one more. So basically you're building on your, your previous knowledge to figure out new facts. So I got I to gotta voice over here for a second. I feel, I feel like you've just helped me have an epiphany here, Dr. Broody, which is, um, well, first of all, time tests are this topic that just kind of lurks in the background, <laughs> like a ghost of every conversation we've had about fluency. And your perspective is, I think, a, a somewhat unique one, not a hardline perspective here. I like the idea that like, they're just overused. They're a blunt force right. instrument to right. try to kind of like to, to pressure kids into fluency when there's so many other interesting games where a student's natural inclination to right. optimize or even win can carry the fluency impetus. I dig that. Number one. And number two, I think is this, um, I feel like there's, we're, we're just mired in these dichotomies in math education discourse around, for instance, conceptual and procedural, which one comes first, which one comes second. And I think you've helped make, help me make sense of a finding <laughs> from Bethany Riddle Johnson. She, I, this article was like, they develop together. And it's given me a new question, which is not, it's not, uh, it's a question I ask myself. It's not like, is this conceptual or procedural what's going on here? But rather, um, what resources do students have and what experiences would help them develop those? Because what you've, you've helped me see is that the fluency is not just the formalization of this burgeoning resource. Right. It actually creates a new resource where when the student is like, okay, I get it. Five times one, five times two, five, five times three, five times four. That is not just a formalization of the kids like counting and grouping. It gives the kid a resource to then do five times zero. Like that is then a new resource in the bag of resources to help the kid create new yeah. concepts. The concepts create the fluency, create the concepts. And so I just, I dig this like the question of, I'm feeling it. Like what are the resources a kid has and what do they need to develop new ones versus like, are we doing concepts today? Are we doing fluency yeah. today? Not both. It can be both. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, how close is that? Back in 1986, uh, Herb Ginsburg and I wrote a chapter together to address the issue of procedural and conceptual knowledge in mathematics. At the time, there were two very popular views. 
there was the skills first view where you taught kids the skills. You didn't bother to take the time to help them conceptually learn. You just taught them the skills by rote. And then kids would apply those skills and eventually understand the math too. The concept first approach was you teach for understanding first and then the skill learning will be easier. If you, if you understand the conceptual basis for a procedure, you're much more likely to learn the procedure. Well, Ginsburg and I took the position that, that the two couldn't be separated, that basically it was an iterative process. That is, you might learn a skill and then discover a relationship and then use that relationship to understand something more and then devise an even better skill and, and so forth and so on. So I think they go hand in hand. They're buddies. They're buddies. Another view would be the simultaneous view that both skills and concepts can develop together. And that's another another interesting possibility, I think, of how they might go together hand in hand. So I don't see this dichotomy between procedural knowledge and conceptual knowledge. It's not the best paradigm for, for trying to figure out how to teach. I think it's really important that children understand both the concepts underlying procedures and the procedures. And when you do that together, you're much more likely to have procedural fluency because fluency is often defined only as using a skill or procedure accurately and quickly, that is, efficiently. The National Research Council published a book called Adding It Up, and they argued from the research that it makes a whole lot more sense to think of fluency not only as efficiency, that is, accurate and fast use of procedure, but the appropriate use of a procedure, and perhaps even more importantly, the application of a procedure to a new situation. Now, you can get efficiency through rote memorization, but what you don't get, what you don't get is efficiency plus appropriate use and more importantly, adaptive use. So that's why I think both procedures and concepts need to be taught in an intertwined way. I Early childhood ed is my joy, is my land. And I, I remember actually when I was a student teacher in a TK classroom. So these kiddos are four, right? This is years and years ago. And we were talking about numbers and this little boy said, two plus three is five. And he said it in such a way that it was clear, like he's regularly celebrated for that, for like knowing that, right? And I'll never forget that my mentor teacher said, whoa, can you show me with these blocks? Like he had, you know, we had little blocks on the table and the little boy burst into tears. <laughs> and there was this palpable panic, right? And I'm not exaggerating, when I say that that was a transformative moment for me, because what I saw, what, and I found out later this kid had been in um, 
I will not name it, but a program that purportedly supports the like gaining of math skills and you can pay them money to have them work with your kiddo. So the little boy clearly like knew this script, right? Right. But when he was asked to show it or make meaning of it, he couldn't, right? And there was a fear and there was a panic. There was a panic. And I know that the parents and caregivers of this child would never do something they, they thought they were doing good and right and helping them give a leg up. They weren't trying to harm their no. kiddo, right? They're taking the time to drive this kid to a class probably Saturday morning. And when I think about that and I think about the way that the, the fear that that little boy had, was already holding and the anxiety that little boy was already holding and I've seen how fluency can be developed so differently, I just, I feel like this conversation and I hope that For educators listening, I feel like you are reminding us and giving us permission to slow down. Yeah. To slow down, (laughs) to attend to children's thinking, to notice these little moments when children are showing their brilliance. And I just really appreciate that. And I, I really appreciate your perspective, your learned perspective after decades and decades of, you know, not to like, whoa, for decades and decades, but I celebrate, I celebrate that. I celebrate that. So thank you so, so much for being in the lounge with us. Thank you for helping us make more sense of this. Really, really, really. You're absolutely welcome. One of the reasons I was so passionate about this is uh, from my own, from my own experience. I was uh, a first grader at the time. I was sitting there at my desk doing a worksheet math worksheet and I had my fingers under the desk because I was figuring out sums and my first grade teacher said Arthur what are you doing with fingers under the desk I should have told her anything but the truth because I I told her I was counting to figure out my addition well my normally patient and kind and soft-spoken teacher erupted and said, don't do that. Don't do that. That makes my heart hurt for baby art. Yeah. Like that, I, that, you know, I've had parents tell me that they've held their kid's fingers down. That's I've been right. holding his fingers down yes. to try to keep him from using them, but he just keeps using his fingers. I'm like, what? What yeah. are you doing? There's a tool you That's carry. Right tool around it's a resource oh wow wow what was my first grade teacher telling me what are the parents who hold their child's fingers down telling the child your way of doing things is wrong it's inferior it's stupid and that's how a child's confidence in their own knowledge can be undermined instead of building on it Instead of honoring it, we too often say, oh, well, that's not right. That's not the right way of doing it. Here's the right way of doing it, the formal way. What it does is is just undermine children's disposition to learn mathematics. It undermines their confidence to solve problems. And they stop doing it. They just stop. They're learners and they eventually learn what not to do. And then they become dependent on the teacher. And they say, all right, I don't know how to do this. 
you tell me how to do this. Yeah, not to mention all the shame and the fear. Yeah, and they won't, you actually hear kids. Don't explain to me why. I don't want to know why. Just tell me how to do it. I, it's just absolute craziness. And and that's what the focus on rote memorization does to kids. Yeah, that's the outcome. It, it really destroys any disposition to think mathematically, to enjoy mathematics. It can be really harmful. Well, I always appreciate Dr. Brody, a conversation that, that uh, is far reaching and takes very seriously teaching mathematics and the gifts that students bring to us in our classrooms, if only we recognize them as such. Bethany, I uh, really appreciate your time here in the lounge. So thank you. And I hope we uh, meet again sometime. Thank you so much, Dr. Brody. Anytime. I'd be happy to come aboard anytime. Thanks so much for listening to our conversation with Dr. Art Baroudi, Professor Emeritus at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Let us know what you thought of this episode. I thought it went a lot of very interesting places. Hit us up in our Facebook discussion group, Math Teacher Lounge Community, or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at MTL Show. What questions do you have about math fluency? What would you like to know? Please let us know, and we'll do our best to investigate that for you over the course of this season. Make sure you don't miss an episode in this new series by subscribing to Math Teacher Lounge wherever you find fine podcast products. You can find more info on all of Amplify's shows at our podcast hub. Go to amplify.com slash hub. Thanks again for listening, folks. <laughs>